Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Get the Lead Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We have been speaking for the last three weeks with Tom Serino, yours truly, Joe Serino, about Chuck's wonderful book, Get the Lead Out, which, by the way, you can order this book. You'll see a link in all of the descriptors of each one of these segments. You just click on that link and you can actually order the original book that uh, Chuck wrote and published when he wrote the book about what happened with Ford in the Mawa and Ramapo area. It's well worth your while. So without any further ado, Chuck, what are we going to talk about today? We're starting the chapter on lead, plastic, and nail polish. So we're getting into the actual carcinogens that make up the Ford paint that we're ultimately going to be talking about. Okay. And without any further ado... Here's Dr. Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. On June 5th, 2008, a gathering of individuals representing, among others, New York State Departments of Health and Environmental Conservation, that would be the DOH, Department of Health, and the DEC, Department of Environmental Conservation. They were there along with Ford Motor Company, Town of Ramapo, United Water, which currently is referred to as Suez, Ramapo College, and Ramapo River Watershed Intermunicipal Council. They were all attending what was billed as the Ramapo Paint Sludge Stakeholders Meeting at the Solid Waste Management Authority of Rockland County. This was back on June 5, 2008. And along with these agencies, there were lawyers on behalf of Ford Motor Company, Town of Ramapo, United Water. Essentially, the meeting was filled to capacity. As the assemblage shifted around a, a long wooden table, drawing back chairs, finding their positions at one side of the table or the other, an announcement was made by a lawyer representing Ford Motor. It was to be understood that this was a closed-door affair. No recordings, no note-taking of any kind. Given this condition, a priority set by Ford, the only names I can reveal from that day are my own, and that of my colleague, Jeff Welch, who is the chair of the Ramapo River Committee. In fact, Jeff and I were to a large degree responsible for this meeting being called. A little more than three years earlier, we had discovered that the paint sludge dumping in the Torn Valley was more extensive than previously believed. While on a field trip sponsored by the Hackley School, a private K-12 prep school in Terrytown, New York, we came upon a larger field of discarded paint sludge, curiously crumbled and mixed with sand and gravel, as if it had been dug up and moved from an earlier site. This led to a visit from representatives of the DEC and the DOH, which led to further investigation on the part of my undergraduate students from Ramapo College of Malwa, New Jersey. Soon, more than a dozen sites were uncovered, many of them marked by scraps of Ford automobile parts all of which were documented by my undergraduates. This was followed by the stakeholders meeting, agreed to by Ford and United Water, who operates a well field at the mouth of the Torn Valley. My students' field work, Jeff Welch's photograph, as well as a personal narrative of my trapping years during the dumping activity, filled the reports sent to the DEC. At the start of the meeting, I asked that given that this was referred to as a stakeholders meeting, why there were no Ramapos invited. I was told that we constituted the parties of interest in respect to the paint contamination of the watershed. I again asked why there were no Ramapo Indians or other cancer victims 
from the pollution as they would appear to me to be primary stakeholders. The answer was that this was a preliminary meeting in which discussions concerning any potential remediation actions were to be fleshed out before going public. Hmm. Seven weeks later, when the public meeting was held, there was no discussion of any potential remediation action. The official summary report from the June 5th meeting that I received from DEC lacked any statement of action and referenced only one name personally at that meeting, mine. During the public meeting, which was held at midsummer 2008 in the village of Hilburn Fire Hall, a great many aerial photos of the various New York sites were on display, along with representatives from DEC and DOH standing by to answer any questions the public might have. The public, mostly residents of Hilburn, and many of them Ramapo natives, primarily were curious as to what was actually in the paint. The only ingredient that had been discussed thus far was the base element of lead. But the list of solvents, mixers, dryers, and plasticizers was still a mystery to the people most affected by exposure to these compounds. It seemed the state regulators either didn't know or were just not up to such a discussion. So the public meeting turned into an open discussion between my students and folks interested in learning more about the Ford compounds they were exposed to. I remember at the time thinking back to the earlier stakeholders meeting in which a Ford representative stated flatly that the old paint was benign and in no way an active carcinogen. I thought about that as I listened to the various community elders discuss the rampant incidence of cancer, asthma, diabetes, and organ failure in their families. So this episode is an attempt to bring together a discussion of story and policy. Story is about place and person, and it, it's organic, not objective, but filled with reaction and interpretation, painful and also celebratory. Policy, on the other hand, references place and people and is in response to story, but it is objective and filled with data and analysis, painful only to its victims, with very little to celebrate. This episode is an attempt to bring together a discussion of story and policy. Story is about a place and a person, and it is organic, not objective, but filled with reaction and interpretation, painful and celebratory. Policy references places and people and is in response to story, but it is objective and filled with data and analysis, painful only to its victims with very little to celebrate. The idea for this chapter was initiated during the stakeholders meeting with Ford's representatives. And one representative had said that the cancers I was referring to were lifestyle hazards and not linked to the paint sludge. His remark is a standard mantra from Ford and echoed by Ford-friendly media. The rural impoverished Ramapo native demographic suffers from lifestyle ailments. The cancer death rate among the Ramapo averages as much as six a month at times, with eldership continuing to decline. There are many stories here. Policy is the tool that a society uses in order to conduct its business and assist its maintenance. Policy has failed many times over in the case of Ford's toxic legacy. Still, it is through the confirmation of story that policy could possibly succeed. It is the story of the paint chemicals and their physical-biological impact 
that needs to impart a new policy, one of recovery. After 25 years in the Ramapo Valley at Malwa, New Jersey, Ford Motor Company closed the shop in 1980. During its high point of production in the 1960s, Ford Motor ran its most successful plant outside of Detroit, reaching record-breaking production before the auto market downturn of the early 70s in reaction to the OPEC oil crisis. During its quarter-century production run in North Jersey, Ford employed a few thousand workers and produced some of its most popular models, including the Mustang, the Pinto, the Fairlane, and the F-150 pickup truck. Locally, the residents in the Ramapo region on both the New York and New Jersey side drove Fords more than any other vehicle, although some folks, like my Uncle Mal, made a point of driving GM vehicles or international trucks in order to declare their independence. Ford was seen as the standard bearer of post-World War II economic growth and aligned with national pride in American-made goods. With the closing of the plant in 1980, Senator Ted Kennedy, looking toward a presidential bid, arrived in July of that year and railed against the failed and flawed economic policies of the Carter administration. Two years later, rock icon Bruce Springsteen immortalized the plant in his song, Johnny 99, in which a fictional auto worker loses his job to the closing of the plant and turns to a life of violence. Then with the dismantling of buildings, a water tower, and a rail yard, the plant site became home to Sharp Electronics and a Sheraton International Crossroads Hotel. But the true nature of Ford's lasting legacy was yet to be made public. During its 25-year production span, Ford created a great deal of waste. Whereas some of the scrap metal was retooled, most of the chemical compounds were dumped in the region. Starting in the latter half of the 1950s, steel drums filled with paint sludge were buried across the state line along the north edge of the plant site in a floodplain community of the village of Hilburn. Years later, in the 1990s, 118 55-gallon drums of sludge was dug up from the soils of this community. And then in the early 2000s, another remediation at this site revealed tons of paint sludge at a depth of 10 feet at this site. This was only one of many illegal waste dumps that would eventually be discovered throughout the valley and up into the hillsides. During the 1960s, the after-hours carting activities were mostly handled by individuals. But with the advent of Earth Day, Carding was jobbed out to mob-related agencies, threatening and intimidating any local resistance to the dumping. By the end of Ford's production years in the region, thousands of tons, hundreds of thousands of tons of paint sludge had been buried in sand quarries, floodplains, wetlands, and abandoned mine shafts. The nature of this material was a closely guarded industrial secret, a secret that to this day continues to unravel its deadly legacy. Actually, the base heavy metals and chemical compounds that made up the paint sludge were no secret to industrial insiders. Lead, antimony, chromium, zinc, and arsenic had long been part of the paint industry's list of toxic ingredients. But in the latter half of the 20th century, DuPont added synthetics to the mixture, volatile organic compounds known as VOCs and phthalates for durability, as well as industrial solvents and biphenyls for maintenance and upkeep of the spray machinery in the shops. This created a slurry mixture that drained through the shop floor grates and was loaded into 55-gallon drums for disposal. 
Once the paint was dumped, it aged first into a sludge-like substance and then hardened into a clay-like compound. Since the closing of the Ford plant, illness and death in relation to the sludge dumping sites have continued to increase. As noted above, Ford dismisses these claims as a lifestyle hazards. In other words, the impoverished and uneducated community in question, by its very nature, exposes itself to poor health care. Heavy metal exposure, as in lead, could be found in house-painted surfaces predating the late 1970s. And the plastics could be from food wrap and leaching container exposure. And solvents like acetone could be from careless shop work and automobile repair. But this list is even assuming that these compounds are the root cause of the cancers, diabetes, and asthma for environmentally related immune system dysfunction. And organ failure is the consequence of years of exposure during which time a wide variety of other impacts industry would claim, like smoking, poor eating, stress. These can all take their toll, industry told us. Given the length of time, the community has been exposed to paint sludge. Well, these things will be considered in further episodes. That is, the effects of lead, plastic, and acetone as a lifestyle hazard will be examined closely in order to understand what Ford is responsible for. Whoa. Gee whiz. God almighty. You know, just... I'm going to ask you a tough question right now, and I hope, I hope I get the answer I'm looking for. Um, in Hilburn, I trust that it was city water that you guys were drinking, not well water. Okay, so that was water from a reservoir we had, and then at one point, city water took over the lines, and it became city water. But the reservoir was it far enough away from this? I mean, not that I would want anyone to be subject to this, but, you know, you, you can't help but wonder about things The like answer that. to that question is yes and no. The reservoir was in a protected place, but there were people also dumping materials further up in the hills in Hilburn. So water that could drain from other sites could access that reservoir. We don't know where all the sites are. To this day, we're what, uh, 2023. To this day, we've discovered many of them, as you'll hear in further episodes, but they didn't keep records on this. You could get, you could, you had, if you had a pickup truck, you worked for Ford and knew somebody who worked for Ford, you could drive around back after hours and a couple of guys would load half a dozen, that's all you could fit in a decent sized uh, pickup bed, half a dozen, six 55-gallon drums, 55 steel drums with lids on them that had this paint sludge in it. And you'd be handed, this is in the early 60s, a nice clean $100 bill to make them disappear. No questions asked. And we know this. We've talked to enough people to know this is one of the ways it was done. It was done in many ways. Yes. We'll, we'll explore more of them, and we'll even explore the, the mob-related ways later. But, but you could get $100 to make these six drums disappear. And a lot of them just disappeared up in the hills. That was the idea. And it was usually done at night. You know, that's what I discovered when I was uh, trapping in those days. And, uh, you know, the, the, the really sad thing is that, well, the whole thing is sad, first of all. But there were fellows who were told, it's just waste, it's not dangerous. So some of those fellows would hose the waste out and take the drum home and convert it into a wood stove for their hunting cabins. Yeah. 
And, of course, metal is porous. And, of course, those fellows sitting in those cabins were inhaling an, an, an effluent from the smoke that contained the lead and the other VOCs. And we don't have those fellows to talk to because they didn't live a long life. Right. There's probably, I'm sure they made the pig roast. I've always seen them yeah. take the 50 in the half, And they, they sliced the drum in half. And, yeah. and they would use those things. And, you know, esophageal cancer, tracheal cancer, lung cancer. But, of course, Ford did this. They would then argue, their lawyers would argue, yeah, but these people smoke. Thank God for cigarettes, right? And, yeah. And, yes, people smoke, and they do get cancer from that. But if you do a comparative analysis study of other people who don't live where the dumping is, you don't see the same cancer clusters. Right. And that would be up to the DOH, which they didn't do. To this day, we don't have the DOH doing a comparative analysis study of anybody who's living in Ringwood. Wow. Well, that's what I saw in the uh, Ford versus Man. At one point, I just n- remember this one part because it was killing me, but I was watching this man walk with the reporter and point at each house and say, well... That was... Oh, that was Vivian Milligan. That was a woman. Oh, it was a woman. Okay. She's walking with the lawyer. Oh, wow. okay, Vivian's yeah. walking with the lawyer. And, and she's she, naming every names. Every house, she can name names of who's died uh, there. People in the 40s, 50s, maybe. Yep. And they all died. Everyone, some sort of cancer. It doesn't happen. I, in my neighborhood where I lived in Norwood, you couldn't walk down the street and say, oh, that person died, that person died, And the thing, the thing to remember while she was saying cancer. that, Vivian was doing that, and that was in the uh, early... Um, was back in the 2000s, well, we're in the 2000s, but it was early in the 2000s that uh, that film was uh, made. Right. And she's doing that. And since then, more people have died in those same houses. Yeah. She didn't just mark the people who died then. She was mentioning the family names. And if you go back and talk to folks in you know Turtle Clan country of Ringwood, you'll find out that the, in those families, more people continue to die because exposure is still there. It's just astounding. The, the absolute complete disregard for human life and safety. Yeah. I mean, good yeah. Lord. I just, and the people who actually facilitated the dumping were themselves victims. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, you remember in the earlier on, I talked about Tony, my brother in law, Tony. Yeah. And he, he was uh, involved with a movement of materials. And uh, only one summer did he have exposure, but it was a hot summer. There was a lot of dust. And he died of uh, lesions on the brain. And the three guys that were his ground crew all died before him. All they did was move it from one side (laughs) of the valley to the other. Uh, There's a road down the middle of the valley. So they could put a dump there. Yeah. Yeah, Some more toxic material. Now, when you say that they were told that this was harmless, who was was telling them? Ford. Ford. Ford, you're getting rid of waste that we have no other place to put. Right. Don't worry about it. So like foremans, work foremans, people yep. like that. Yep. Nobody was given gloves. It was hard, even in the shops, in the paint shops. And, and, and there are people, I've, I've known people, even Hillburners who, who worked at Ford, who will argue with me about this. They will say, well, first of all, nobody knew that this stuff was carcinogenic. Nobody Nonsense. knew that. They'll say that. Well, that's not true. And then they'll say, well, the, the thing is that the industry wasn't trying to hurt its own people. Why do you think industries pick up and leave after 25 years? Mm. They've, they've built up enough c- right. compensatory issues, uh, enough coverage of issues, enough illness of issues. They've done enough damage. It's time for them to move another place, seek other ground, more fertile, uh, as of yet, unspoiled population demographics to work with. That's especially why they offshore. 
You know, the globalization has extended the the dirtiness of what we used to do to our own people to scores of other nations being done essentially in the brand name, but that's represented as our name. You know, talk about bad and neighbor policy. Mexico, yeah, they have all plants there now. Yeah, yeah. And you know they are doing the same. Well, they don't. Exactly. They don't even have the same environmental regulations right. to try to follow, so they don't have to worry about they that. Has any of this served to, in any way, curtail Ford's behavior and GM's behavior and Honda's behavior, for that matter? They have plants here in the United States. Has it made it any harder for them? To do, I'm sure they're not dumping paint into. I would hope, my God, sure? into ravines. Oh, I guess, <laughs> I guess, I'm not sure. Really. I, I'm not sure of anything. Right. Uh, I would say, I would say, <laughs> if anything, the behavior is they're more careful about it. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're legitimate. It, it would be case by case examination, but I don't know if they're right. legitimately being careful about it. I, I do know that they consider it a liability now because of the people who have fought this. But I would even argue, how big a liability? Right. How big, I know how much Ford ultimately paid on the New York side where we did our cleanup. I have a pretty good idea of how much they'd have to pay on the New Jersey side if they ever commit themselves to that cleanup. But we're talking a multinational, multi-billion dollar company. They can afford it. That's the crazy argument about this. Yeah. But again, right. again, they have plants elsewhere and plants in, in other countries that are, you know, or India. India's gotten you know, uh, walloped with our, our productions, our various production lines of various chemical companies that have landed in India. And the argument is always, it's neoliberalism. We're employing these people, we're giving them a better lifestyle, simultaneously we're poisoning them. But right. that's sort of not the point. That'll, that'll be discovered a few generations later, or, right. or even a few decades later. So right yeah. now it's worth it for yeah. those people. And that's the argument. It's always worth it for Ford or for these companies because there's cost to doing business. And if you can lose this, what would be a huge cost, which is getting rid of this stuff correctly, or at least uh, then let's get rid of it. Let's give it to a guy in his pickup truck and throw him a hundred bucks. These are the things that these companies do. And as you say, even the litigation, it's worth it. It's worth it to be litigated against. It's worth it to have to do re remediation as little as possible and then it's worth it to uh delay 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 and and try to uh dumb the remediation down so they're still the winners in the end oh always yeah. i think and the argument again the argument is economics they'll say but look how many people we've employed look at the compensation right. look at the medical compensation plans we have if they got uh, damaged in the paint shops well at least they've got medical compensation for what's left of their life they'll say right. things like that yeah but um <laughs> how about just doing it the right way yeah. to start with right and that that's a problem with a lot of industry and someone's going to still die young every life is precious to think that well they are at this economic level they're not worth as much. Yeah, what are they frankly. contributing? So what do we care? Yeah, yeah. And it I, I remember one time at a at a CAG meeting. That's a community action group meeting that uh, the EPA was required to participate in. They'll announce that they're doing this out of the goodness of the heart. No, they were required <laughs> to participate in because it was declared a Superfund site. This would be the Ringwood site, and I remember uh, one time. I, it might have been Chief Mann who said this, I'm not sure, but one of the individuals sitting up front said, look, we all know that if this level of contamination had ever happened in Saddle River, New Jersey, it would be cleaned up tomorrow. And right. we know that. 
And I remember a representative from uh, EPA at the time, whose name I, I won't mention. Uh, I don't know why I'm protecting them, but uh, it, it, they, they didn't know they were going to be quoted, though I do quote them later in the book, uh, said, let's not turn this into uh, an ethnic thing or a race thing, they said. But that's what it is. And the room exactly cracked up. Is. The room cracked up because <laughs> all the people who are sitting there, all the, the Turtle Clan members who are sitting there are like, well, what? Are you still in denial, Mr. White Guy right. from the EPA, Mr. Necktie White Guy? Are yeah. you still? It was, it was Walter Walter He's Mudgeon, and he said that remark. And but Sword it's like up in the stage. to defend the remark. <laughs> well, let's not bring it to that level because then we're 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 inflaming the discussion. Right. Bullshit! It's over. Sure. You're well, already that, there. That reminds me of you know when. Ted Cruz says after exactly the uh, after say. the killing in Uvalde, yep. you know, oh, let's not make this political. Right. right. You know, <laughs> what are you or, talking about? You're the one who's making it political. Yes. And the other thing is, you know, uh, well, it's too soon. It's too soon. And yeah, it's every, never, it's that's ridiculous. Fresh. That's People ridiculous. People are right now grieving. We have to let them grieve before we see Yeah, what I always say when they say, they tell time. me it's too soon. No, no, you don't understand. I have to talk about this right now because in three or four days from now, there's going to be another mass shooting. Yeah. Some and, and, and to bring it back Anymore. to the Ramapos, to bring it back yes. to the Ramapos, what they were <laughs> saying was, we have to talk about it any way we can talk about it because you go home, we're still here dying. Yep. Right, yep. right. How, how does that make this something we ought not to speak of in that manner. Absolutely. I don't know if it was Walter. It might have been and him, but I don't know who it was. Really. People are constantly dying and have been for years since the Ford plant was there. Constantly. Still today, people are dying. They're getting cancer. They're dying young. Their kids are sick. This is what's happening. Where we're going, uh, I just wanted to point this out. Where we're going with this, this next couple of episodes is to look more closely the three bodies of uh, contaminants, the um, the lead, the plastic, and the acetone, and and the relationship that they have to us, to the human body, to the health of the ecosystems as well. And part of that is because one of the things that happens on the part of the regulatory agencies, for example, the Department of Health, is they will say, well, these are complicated subjects, and you can't really know that your particular malady is in relationship to a particular toxin. They'll, they will say that. They'll say well, the studies are not clear on that. It depends on the proximity of the material to the site. They'll start saying this stuff. This is all bullshit, total bullshit. And you can know, and this is not hard to understand. This isn't rocket science. And so what we're going to do with the episodes is we're going to break them down a little bit for folks, hopefully, who don't know this but they can learn it this is a learnable thing and they need to learn it because they may not realize you know the antimony spots that they're being told is ringworm may very well be an indication of exposure to antimony the partner to lead and this may be far gone into their system and and there are things that they can do to try to uh, distill that they can chelate and try to get that material out of their system but if they don't ultimately it affects their brain I mean, it can give them various organ damage, but ultimately it can affect the brain. It's heavy metal. It can affect the oxygen content in the blood cells. And they can know that. That's a, there's things you can know. Right. And there are questions that you can then articulate to when the regulator comes to your door the one or two times in their lifetime they actually visit a damaged place yeah. that you can, you can buttonhole them with. And, well, and I've seen that happen, but I've also seen 
agencies, including governmental agencies, arrogantly walk away saying, well, these people can't seem to understand. They understand something. They're right. sick and they're dying. Right. They understand and that. that. Knowledge is power, so the more exactly. they can learn yep. about exactly yep. what is making them sick, why they have something that looks like ringworm, the more they can know about it, the more they can react to these people that are sent from D.C. or Ford or wherever. When they say, oh, you just don't understand, and they, it's insulting to say the least, but it's, it's criminal. So the more they know, the more they're going to be able to respond in yeah. an effective manner. Yeah. And also, to the degree that it's possible, the more they're going to be able to take steps to try to mitigate this circumstance. And in the end, they have cause for action. Yeah. Legal action. And you you just and, said and, and they can live longer. And they can live longer. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> foraging people. A lot of folks who are rural, especially Indians, are foraging people. Well, there are ways you can... It doesn't mean you, you stop foraging. It means you closely examine what you're foraging to see if it has indications of contamination. Right. And, and, and you can find it. You can identify those things. And, and they're important to identify. Sometimes it's that you're in denial and you don't want to identify them. Mm -hmm. But other times it's that you just don't know that they're identifiable. Well, you know, I took that picture off of a wall in, in an IAC uh, pub, and you told me you had something to do with that picture of all the different fish and do not eat. Oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And the the fish, fish advisory. Do not eat this part, the fish advisory yeah, yeah. of the Hudson River. Now they have the education not to eat that fish. That's it. That can save somebody's life. The mistakes have been made. Things have gone wrong. But give people the knowledge they need to keep themselves as healthy as they can be and live as long as they can. Yep. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You know, this is a part of the, uh, as we wrap up right now, this is a part of, uh, of this whole series that I think I like the best. This is the part that starts talking about the actions you can take, the things you can do, and the importance of the knowledge we're trying to share right now and, and how that can empower you to overcome some of this problem. I think that's why you wrote the book. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. what we're trying to do here. Yeah. So, folks, thank you so much for being with us again. We look forward to talking with you again next week. Uh, what are we going to talk about next week? Well, we're going to pick up uh, where we just left off, and the first thing we're going to talk about is a little bit of uh, about the lead that's in the paint and how it got there and why it's there. And then we're going to move on from that to some of the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds. And we're going to reference what are the reactions when you've been exposed to this stuff. To some degree, we're going to talk about that. And eventually, that'll move us, I don't know if we'll get there next week or the week after, into uh, plastics, which is... Uh, New, it's a mighty fact. Look what I have here. I have, oh boy. I have literature on microplastics oh right boy. here. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into the plastics and this plastic in paint. And sure, uh, sure. That, that actually brings us uh, into the relationship with DuPont and how DuPont developed the uh, diethylhexyphthalate and what that means in terms of affecting our biology. It literally affects our ability to reproduce. And the exposures mm. are from that. So we're, it's it's not fun and games, but it's important stuff because it's, I know where some of this stuff still is out there. And, and those folks, like folks in Hilburn and folks in Ringwood and, and uh, folks living in any area where the, the paint was dumped, they're not completely out of the woods. No, no, they're not. And anything that sheds a light in the darkness is a step in the right direction. So thank you for that, Dr. You're Chuck. Welcome. We appreciate it. And uh, 
We will see you all next week for more Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.